0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
2: To be or not to be is truly an outstanding motion picture. An exciting romantic comedy keyed to an ever-mounting tempo of suspense. To Be or Not To Be brings you the screen's beloved star, Carol Lombard, in the kind of role that won her the applause of millions. And that mirthmaker of the movies, that Casanova of the radio, your favorite comedian, Jack Benny, in something entirely new, something surprisingly different, and it's hilarious all the way. To Be or Not To Be is a swift-moving comedy-melodrama Enriched by the magic that sparkles in every Ernst Lubitsch production. It's the picture everyone will want to see.
1: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Paula Guthett.
3: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back.
1: Also, back with us is Mr. Ken Stanley. Hi there. And joining us is Mr. Lutz Backer. Good to be here for all this Lubitsch stuff. The Lubitsch Palooza.
4: <laughs> this week on the
1: projection booth, we are concluding our discussion of Ernst Lubitsch with a talk about his 1942 film, To Be or Not to Be. It's the story of Joseph and Maria Tura, two actors in Poland who are in a current run of Shakespeare's Hamlet, though they are working on a new play called Gestapo. The new play never happens on stage, but they're able to act it out in real life after Poland falls to the Nazis. The film is one of the first films to openly lampoon Nazis, made in a time before Pearl Harbor, though released afterwards, in a time when mocking Nazis was not acceptable as it should have been going to be talking about and spoiling this film and the 1983 remake, so please be warned. Ken, when was the first time you saw it to be or not to be, and what did you think? I
5: believe I saw it at a screening at the Detroit Film Theater several years ago, and at that time, I saw it in a different light. I looked at it as being a typical Hollywood film of that era. And then I got to see more and more of Lubitsch and I was able to recontextualize it. So recently, I, I feel like I have only really recently seen it, you know, for the first time.
4: What's about you? I actually went back into my old Bible from the, from the early seventies when I first got in, really got a, seriously into film at Wayne State. And I, Andrew Series, American Cinema and where I always put a check mark next to the films, especially of the, the pantheon directors of course <laughs> and i i did see a good handful of of the uh, uh, shop around the corner. Uh uh. Sure probably that. my favorite one, I guess. The warmest one I suppose. Uh, shop around the corner, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a favorite of mine too. Yeah. Mine too. And and sure enough there was to be or not to be among among the bunch, but I don't know exactly where I saw it. Could be it could have been the D F T where I went a lot, but I went to all of the venues at that point and religiously watched everything coming in over over television as mm-hmm. well. So. Haven't, I don't recall seeing it on the big screen, though. Uh, on a, film needs to be seen on the big screen, too. Yeah. How about yeah. you,
3: Paula? On TV, and I've watched this one so many times, I can't tell you when the first time I saw it was. I first watched it because of Carol Lombard, and then as I learned more about the history and the time and Lubitsch and the backstory and stuff, I've, I've just really always liked it. The The more I find out about it, the more I love it.
1: This was a first time watch for me. I had never seen to be or not to be, except for this podcast. And I think that was one of the reasons why I chose this film was to finally force me to sit down and watch this. I know of Jack Benny. You know, he was such a major force in entertainment for so long. But I, other than a few bits here and there, I really haven't experienced too much Jack Benny. So this was one of those. And then also, I had more experience with the 1983 Mel Brooks film than I did with this. And I have to say, uh, and I, I hope this doesn't upset any of the listeners at home, I really dislike that Mel Brooks film. We'll talk about it a little bit more later. Um, so that kind of soured me on the idea of seeing the original because I kept hearing, oh, they're very, very similar. Um, no, they are mm, worlds apart. I don't, apart. Think, they I don't <laughs> think they are at all. Worlds apart. And huh. My goodness, what a great film, and what a film that speaks to us uh, all these years later. Uh, I think it's the kind of like we were saying with last week with trouble in paradise is just as relevant and yeah. fresh today as it was when it was made yeah.
3: sadly still relevant i
1: mean these days you can't punch nazis or make fun of nazis and uh and this was kind of the same thing you're not supposed to make fun of nazis at this time we're supposed to be nice to mr hitler uh you know this was like i said 1942 this came out we're just getting into the war at the end of 1941 but before that it was pretty much. Don't talk bad about what's going on in Germany. Mm-hmm. There was a neutrality mm-hmm. going on at that yeah. point in time.
5: I got—I got to add that I think I had an aversion to Jack Benny, and that may have been uh, an influence on my I, my initial reaction to the film. <laughs> Growing up, that was Jack Benny was what my mother watched on oh, TV. Right. Huh. You know, oh. and so yeah, I, I was uh, it may be unfair of me to have made that judgment, but when I was a kid and first started watching television. That was when, you know, the Beatles hit and stuff. So anything that seemed adult-like or something that the parents were watching, Mm -hmm. that was something that I had an aversion to naturally. Now, of course, I've grown up, matured, gotten old and go back to that stuff. And it was great. It was terrific. You know, in fact, I've learned more about Jack Benny in the course of doing research for this and stuff. And he actually had a battle with the network that put him on television because he had been on radio for years and years and years. And they didn't want whatever network wanted to do a show on television. They did not want Rochester to be part of it. Mm. And he stood adamant on that idea that they were opposed to that particular character when they realized that a black person was going to be doing it. And at that time, they tried to want him to make things simple. But. Benny says, "You take Rochester, or you don't get me." Right. So you know you find out little bits and pieces of things like mm-hmm. that, and you say, well, "This guy was actually pretty good, good-natured, and it was fantastic comedic timing-wise." Mm. And so I've grown in appreciation. So that, you know, the first time I saw, him, I didn't know that stuff. Now I know that stuff, and now I have more of an appreciation for him, for him as having been a performer. And so watching it recently has just been a delight.
1: I think it was, was it Jack Benny that did that skit with Mel Blanc, where he uh, came in and was buying stuff at a store and driving Mel Blanc crazy to the point where Blanc ends up committing suicide on <laughs> a TV show, <laughs> and it was fantastic.
6: Yes, sir. What can I do for you? Oh, uh, I'd like to see some wallets. Please. All right, we have a large variety here. Well, all these wallets you see here are a dollar ninety-eight. Well, they look nice. A dollar ninety-eight. Yes. Sir. Mm-hmm. Say, boss, Here's uh, some better wallets right here. See. Oh, this is oh, Don would love this one. This is this that's, is a real nice one. Huh? That's genuine cowhide. Cowhide? Yes, yes, sir. How much is that? Forty dollars. <laughs> I Don would like this. He has been with me a long All time. Right, I'll take this. Now, uh, wrap it up as a gift and send it to Mr. Don Wilson. 4946 Whipset, Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills. Hmm? Beverly Hills. Yes, sir. Oh, here's your
0: money. $40. Oh, $40. Yes, sir.
6: I'll make a nice package. Yeah. yeah, to do that. Wrap it up in a nice Christmas package. Beautiful. As a 10. Let's see. There's 20, 10. There's $40. All right, and thank you very much. You're you're. Welcome. Oh, wait a minute. Before you put in, I want to write a nice note. All right. For, you know, a little card for Don. Just one second. To Don, this gift is from Jackie Ogali oh, Oshucks. Oh, I hope that you like it. It costs forty bucks.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
6: is that good?
7: Yeah, yeah whipping to something around for a dollar
1: <laughs> That rapport that he had with Rochester, especially on the radio, that's kind of where I finally first got turned on to him. But yeah, I know what you mean. Like. Uh, for me, it was Bob Hope. It was like I want nothing to do with Bob Hope because
3: oh my he's god, this old guy, yes, right? Because when we were young, oh, he was yeah. by it. He oh, was god, in he the eighties. So he was intolerable. Yes, yeah, exactly. and then I started to you know watch his old films, and I was like, wow, this yeah. guy is hilarious. It's a revelation. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, Jack Benny. I had no frame of this is my frame of reference for Jack Benny mm-hmm. to be or not to be. Right. Like that's my i. Never listened to him on the radio, never seen him on TV. And I started getting, I started, I have started going back very occasionally listening to his radio shows because Ronald Coleman and his wife, Benita Hume, played his neighbors. And I love Ronald Coleman. He has a beautiful voice. And uh, so, yeah, Jack Benny, this this was it for me for many years. That was it. Mm. I, I mean, I kind of realized he played the violin. I knew about Rochester, not the backstory, and uh, that he was notoriously cheap.
1: Right. That's right. his
3: shtick, right? Your
1: money or your life. Right, right. So, the shtick
5: was that he was right. very vain.
3: Yes. And, yeah, and uh, <laughs> obviously. Humble brags
5: all over the place. Right, yeah.
3: Uh-huh. The right. originator of the humble brags. Yeah.
5: <laughs> Played the violin and always lied about his age and then he oh, was yeah. uh, yeah.
3: Right, 39. 39,
5: yeah. right.
3: <laughs> Well, now that I'm 39 myself, I'm so down.
5: Yeah, I just recently turned 39 myself.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't it brilliant? It's the best age to be.
4: Yeah. It's interesting that uh, one way that Lubitsch persuaded him to do that and uh, Ben had desperately wanted to make – work with a, a great director. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lubitsch told them that you're not really a comedian. You're an actor playing comedian, ah. playing a comedian. Ah. Uh, and all of the all of those traits that we just mentioned, they're all part of the the, the acting performance. The only thing that's real is his love for the violin.
1: Yeah, this was uh, produced by uh, Korda. I can't remember the gentleman's first name. Uh, Alexander. Alexander Korda. Okay. Tell me a little bit about the the backstory of
4: that. Well, it's it's a really fascinating backstory because all this this confluence of things happening that made this ultimately uh, as good a place to make a film as the as Paramount had been because of all of these coincidences that gave him the best possible crew and the best possible um, major collaborators. He had. Astonishingly to me, uh, left Paramount as early as 1938, maybe 39 to go independent. About, right? Yeah. Okay. And he did it with an, uh, really unexpected figure. Saul so Lesser, who was, who produced whose main stock and trade was making, uh, uh, Tarzan movies. Upper, lower, you know, in the upper range of, of not quite, Poverty row, right. but you know not too far above that. C plus and so, <laughs> C plus. Yeah. He, was, he uh it's it's odd that that uh, that Lubitsch wanted to wanted to work right. with him.
1: Yeah, why? So, Hitches, and he, why he that start.
4: agreed to make film the f- each of the four films that, we got, that we're going to make for thirty thousand dollars plus the percentage. Then, mm-hmm. but that's way less than he got at uh, at Paramount, and so it it was an odd setup, and it really turned out to be not uh, workable. They made. Uh, they made just one feeling, uh, that uncertain feeling with film that, that is not a very good film in, in its filmography. Uh, and so, uh, to be or not to be was to be the second one of the bunch, but they agreed to, to drift apart. Okay. So, uh, and coincidentally, Alexander Korda was up to make a final film for United Artists before going back to Britain. And he'd been in the in the U.S. primarily, it seems, to be a propaganda arm for the British government mm. trying to get the U.S. to come in and help uh, with the war effort. And he got knighted as soon as he got back. So he was, he really apparently did a good job. (laughs) Right. Didn't he go on to produce the third man,
5: or am I thinking of somebody else?
4: Uh, he, I think he was involved for that. I
3: know he produced that Hamilton woman, Uh, which was, um, a bit propagandistic. Yeah, that was the first one.
4: That was the second one. He came over with, uh, Thief of Baghdad. Got it. Uh, to finish that because the North, African locations for that were overrun by the, the yeah, war, right. and so they had to find different locations. And he had a brother that was involved, Vincent Corda. Vincent Korda. He was great, great production designer. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. So they f- he finished Thief of Baghdad, made that Hamilton Woman, made Lydia, and then finally The Jungle Book in in fairly quick succession. No. Within um, a couple of years. Right. Yeah. A couple of
3: years, two, three years right. at the most.
4: And he did all of that at General Service Studios, which I'm familiar with because I'm writing a book about Reynolds Studio Independent Production, and that's the key studio that I'm mm-hmm. dealing with. So I knew about all of that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it goes off to Goldwyn, which was a comp- competitor studio to General Service, but the one with the greatest reputation had been United Artists Studios. And then Goldwyn took us over, but there was still this connection with UA, uh, besides the gold, the Goldwyn films, some United Artists related films were made there. Trouble is that Corda, uh, was running late, was over budget with Jungle Book and couldn't get the money. And so if United Artists wanted to stay on good terms with Corda, which they wanted to, they had to come up with a funding for it. They did, and they did a very unusual thing for United Artists, which was to make the film themselves. United Artists didn't get involved in production. Uh, yeah, distribution,
7: right? So
4: it was, it was a very unusual setup. They started a, a production company called Romaine Film Corporation, and they cam- came up with a production loan from the Bank of America for $1.2 million, which is about what they spent uh, on making the film, which is pretty substantial. Mm-hmm. It was a longer film than the Trouble in Paradise, but Trouble in Paradise was made for only – Five twenty, five hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Uh and so we had Saul Lesser having made that that one film with him at uh Goldwyn Studio. Uh so there was that connection with Goldwyn Studios already. Uh and now Corda with with his connection to UA and uh and, and he had a connection with gold with Goldwyn as well. Uh Corda brought in his Terrific personnel that he had on the, on the, um, general service studios films. Uh, Rudolf Maté, who was one of the great, uh, cinematographers. Vince, his brother, Vincent Corda, who was a wonderful production designer. And also Lawrence Butler, uh, who was, a uh, f- fabulous. If you watch all those films that they made at General Service, you can know what a great uh, special effects man mm-hmm. uh, he was. And you can see that along with Vincent Corda's contribution in that opening sequence where you see the city and it's all, that's all special. That's not, nothing there is, right. is real. Uh, it's all back, back lot magic. So, those two, the Solessa Strain, the Corda Strain, the United Artists contribution, uh, and then finally the Goldwyn Studios backlot, as well as other creative staff like uh, Julia Heron, who did the, uh, who did the costume design for the film. She was the, the top figure in Indi- for indies, uh, do mm-hmm. for, for costume design and the sound people and all of that. The, the backlot at, uh, at Golden Studios was really top notch. Uh, I had an opportunity to talk to some of those people, and that's the impression I really they gave me that uh, uh, they were just uh, a wonderful place to work. They had a, a big tank as well, and they had a commissary, and so they were sort of up there with the with the major studios and the amenities that uh-huh. they provided. General Service was not, and I saw. It was, a, it was a terrific package that fell into place because of all of those uh, accidental contributions right. by, by people.
1: I want to talk about that opening uh, and just, you know, I talked a lot on the last episode about the way that our our expectations are subverted. You know, talking about that, the trash man on the gondolier. And this is very much that same kind of thing as far as having our, our uh, expectations subverted, as far as we open up with... Hitler on a street in Poland, and this very I think you use the word bombastic uh, voiceover artist.:
2: We're in Warsaw, the capital of Poland. It's August 1939. Europe is still at peace. At the moment, life in Warsaw is going on as normally as ever. But suddenly something seems to have happened. Are those Poles seeing a ghost? Why does this car suddenly stop? Everybody seems to be staring in one direction. People seem to be frightened, even terrified, some flabbergasted. Can it be true? It must be true, no doubt. The man with the little moustache, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler in Warsaw when the two countries are still at peace and all by himself? He seems strangely unconcerned by all the excitement he's causing. Is he by any chance interested in Mr. Maslowski's delicatessen? That's impossible. He's a vegetarian. And yet he doesn't always stick to his diet. Sometimes he swallows whole countries. Does he want to eat up Poland, too? Anyhow, how did he get here? What happened? Well, it all started in the general headquarters of the Gestapo
1: in Berlin. They won't explain it to us why Hitler is there in Poland. And then we go to... A uh, Gestapo office, and now here we see Jack Benny as this Gestapo officer, and there's this very elaborate scene of him getting a confession out of a child about his the the child's father is not happy with Hitler, and there's this whole thing of of there's a a joke that's being told about Hitler being a a piece of cheese, and then eventually we get uh, Hitler coming into the scene, everyone saying hi, Hitler, and when he says hi myself. (laughs) <laughs> that's when we break. <laughs> oh God, I love that line. That's when we break and that's when we learn that we were actually on a stage and that we rejoin that scene a little bit later on. That's great. But we have just been fooled as far as this is not uh, Hitler, this is not a real Gestapo office, we are watching a play or a A play in practice and progress. A hack
5: hack would have done this in a linear fashion, right? Right. Right. We start off with a shot of the theater, Mm -hmm. we know we're at a theater, (laughs) we see that a rehearsal of a play is being done, then the guy goes outside and says to prove that he looks like Hitler, goes out into the public. This is almost exactly backwards and it is what distinguishes Lubitsch from we are, a hack.
1: Everybody we else. are being yeah. lied to. Yeah. We are being lied yep. to in this Yeah. yeah. Once, and again, I love it. once again. And the whole movie <laughs> yeah. is about lying. So <laughs> once there again, you go.
5: Once again, beginnings are, di- are always difficult. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The line yeah. from uh, Trouble in Paradise exactly. that Herbert Marshall says. The title in and of itself I think is worth talking about because yes. it is in the – it's kind of meta. The whole idea of how it relates to actors, to be or not to be. In the sense of to be this character, or to be your own person, or to just act, or to uh, exist, or not to exist, it's exist. exist. existential. Right, the very core of that that title. And of course, it comes from Hamlet, which is one of the plays that they're they're performing Hamlet and rehearsing Gestapo.
3: That's also the line that is the signal for her lover, yeah, to go to her. Because she knows where he's going to be.
5: I find it hysterically funny that Joseph Tora, the actor portrayed by Jack Benny, Needs to be prompted.
7: <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Every time he
3: has to yeah. be prompted to yeah, start not to be. Well, he's nervous because this guy keeps well, getting up and leaving. But no, and no, but I'm saying
5: the first time we see
3: oh, the, first, right. the very first oh, time. Oh, that's there's, true. Yeah, that's true. Guy right. The
5: guy's underneath the footlights. To be or not to be. Or <laughs> not to be. be or not to be. <laughs> to be, not to be. <laughs> if you're not ready to perform yes. that particular sequence.
1: Right. It's the I, first line <laughs> of the scene, it's the first line of the most famous soliloquy that there
5: is. Right, exactly. yeah.
1: The young prince. I always like that, too, how he's the young prince. Even he's and he's, he's 39.
3: Be, yeah. The young I was prince. I say, he's got to be 39. Oh, yeah. At police. least. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that is wonderful. Yeah, and and the whole idea, too, of it being Hamlet and the whole thing of, you know, Hamlet having the fake play within the play to in order to catch the conscience of the king. And we're going to do this and that we are practicing Gestapo, but then we get to play it out in real life real later life. on. Yeah. That is so wonderful. But, I mean, just yeah. the structure One of, the, of this film. The notable great.
5: things about the play Hamlet is that Hamlet is a—is a, he mad or is he not mad? That's all. And the also, mm-hmm. also he's he's somebody who is not quick to action. Right. That he, he spends the entire playing being indecisive
7: mm-hmm.
5: and always asking these rhetorical questions, uh, including "to be or not to be." It, it's the whole idea is that should I do this or should I do that? Should I do this or should yeah. I do that? Right. And he eventually tries. Diabolically to get everybody else to do his bidding for him right. in mm-hmm. one way or another, right. well, and everybody ends up dead.
1: Right, yeah. right. <laughs> to to the point that Lutz made earlier, as far as this being, uh, you know, produced by this guy who uh, gets knighted for his work in in war propaganda. Should we go into the war, or should right. we? Go yeah.
4: Into the war? Yeah. yeah, this is
1: very like there's oh, an we indecisive. Don't know. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly.
4: And the decisive thing happened while during the making right. of the film,
1: exactly. exactly. You know. Yeah, no. The, the the thing for us definitely happened at that point with Pearl Harbor. The thing for them already had happened with right. the invasion yeah. of Poland, and we're not doing anything yeah. about yeah. that. The U.S. Yeah. Is, is sitting on their hands, and we're just like so embarrassing. Should we be or should we not be? Yeah. We're turning yeah. back uh, boatloads of Jewish people, Jewish refugees, and you know, talking with. Uh, we'll, we'll hear the interview with uh, uh, Josh McBride later, but. You know, hey, uh, we have stories about concentration camps, but they're being put on, you know, page thirty of the New York Times. They're not being front page news. So yeah.
4: there's there's an angle that I mentioned, or tried to mention earlier, wanted to, uh, that it was only the fifth major, anti-Nazi film mm. uh, that the floodgates opened after. You know, um, Pearl Harbor. Uh, Hangman also died. Fritz Lang came in mm-hmm. forty-three, mm-hmm. and so on, uh, and many low-budget ones as well. But uh, there was the first one in thirty-nine at Warner Brothers, which was the most aggressive, and at, against the and on, in, in the anti-Nazi movie, "Confessions of a Nazi Guy" by Anatole Litvak, uh-huh. the, "The Mortal Storm" by Frank Borsegi, in story. nineteen mid nineteen forty. All release dates. Manhunt by Lang in June of 1941, and so Ansar so Night by John Cromwell, also in mid 1941. And so this was certainly he was being rightfully aggressive with yes. uh, with doing that. Well, in okay.
5: America, there was a general kind of uh, neutrality for a certain amount of time. Prominent Americans were actually boosters of Hitler. Yeah. To one extent or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least Henry Ford was at least sympathetic. Charles Lindbergh. Well, they were, yeah. Ford like and GM were
3: meeting in New York City with German representatives. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because Ford was they wanted to, a, yeah, and they I wanted to like. hedge their bets in case the Nazis took over everything.
7: Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, Henry Ford himself loved the Nazis, loved what the Nazis represented, and was all about you know white power and white supremacy. So it was yeah. just yeah, cheap labor. Really embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really
3: embarrassing.
4: And then the whole story about the consulate in uh, in in L.A. Mm-hmm. being right on top of that whole situation, trying to nip in the bud anything that was anti mm-hmm. uh, anti Nazi.
1: There's a really great book if you guys haven't read. It's called. Uh, uh, Hollywood and Hitler it came out from Columbia a few years ago. It yeah. really does a great job of talking about this prohibition of, against anti Nazi sentiments uh, coming through in films. And yeah, I, I highly recommend that.
3: I have to say too that Pearl Harbor had a was had a very great effect on Carol Lombard. Um, I don't know if it's time for me to yeah, talk please, about talk that. Yeah, please talk
1: about Carol Lombard because she is
3: She was she's ah, a war a star, hero in yeah. my opinion. She's mm-hmm. a war hero. So, Carol Lombard, obviously the star Maria Tura, um, she was born on October 6th, 1908 in Fort Wayne, Indiana as Jane Alice Peters. And she had started in the silent era at the age of 12, and by the late 20s she was starring in Max Senate comedies. And she was a tomboy, loved to run around, do her own stunts, all of that stuff. And she survived into talkies. She had an acceptable voice, what have you. Um, and so she had signed with Paramount, and they weren't quite sure what to do with their new star. This was in the early 30s. She was also known as the Profane Angel because she swore like a sailor, but she looked like an angel. So when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, immediately – hollywood kind of came together like there was the, the victory um hollywood victory committee and betty davis and john garfield put together the canteen hollywood canteen and all of that stuff so it was like i feel like the actors were into it and so clark gable was the chair of this hollywood victory committee and she went on a war bond drive very early like january 1942 like it had just happened The day after she sold uh, the record amount of war bonds, she sold $2 million worth of war bonds in one day. Then she decided to fly home to Hollywood because she thought Clark Gable might be carrying on with his co-star at the time, Lana Turner. And so she hopped on a DC-3 with her mother and Clark Gable's agent who had been accompanying her on this trip. And they couldn't make it. She was in Indiana and she needed to get to Hollywood. They couldn't make it the whole way. So they stopped in Las Vegas. And when they took off again, the plane crashed into a mountain and everyone aboard perished. She was the first woman killed in World War II, first American woman to die on a war mission in World War II. And she was awarded the Medal of Freedom posthumously. And Clark Gable never got over his guilt that she wanted to get back so soon because of his lifestyle. And the irony is he had actually been planning a surprise welcome back party for her.
5: With Lana Turner.
3: That I don't was, know if but, Lana yeah. Turner was involved, but he wasn't fooling around with Lana oh, Turner. Um, with terrible. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I think that wasn't until later, okay. but um, <laughs> it, it was not the case. I'm not saying he never fooled around. I wasn't there. But in this case, it was not true. He was um, – planning the surprise victory party for her. I know she was. Welcome she, party.
5: She was very patriotic. I know that. She was that
3: very patriotic. She had
5: a, signed a contract, which in today's dollars would have mounted something like $7 million a year. And during the contract system mm-hmm. back then. And she, she pointed out that, you know, yeah, it's a lot of money. I give 80% of my income back in taxes and I'm proud to do that. Okay. And yeah. FDR like mm-hmm. cited her and, mm-hmm. uh, and wrote a letter to, to her saying they appreciated that she would make that statement, mm-hmm. that she had no problems helping her country with that giant tax mm-hmm. burden mm-hmm. upon yeah, her. Yeah, right. You know, a lot of people would have complained about it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, today came. imagine For sure, everyone someone, complains
3: oh, about yeah. it. Yeah. Everyone does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so To Be or Not To Be was her final film. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and they say that her death might have negatively affected the box office of it, but... I mean, who knows? I don't know about that. Also, how are they going to promote this film? You know, I mean, I guess they're going to promote it as an anti-Nazi film, but still at the same time, it was some people saw this as being in such poor taste that they were making fun of the Mm -hmm. Nazis rather than... Mm -hmm. You know, criminalizing them. I mean, yeah, but and we can talk about that as far as parody versus, you know, outright outrage. Mm -hmm. And I'm somebody more to uh, parody something or to poke fun at it, you know, just to point out the absurdity Mm -hmm. to laugh than to to get angry sometimes.
3: Yeah. And certainly more people are going to if you can sneak it in in the humor, more people are going to listen to it than are going to listen to somebody preaching or.
1: Right. It's much easier to slip that knife in between the ribs if you're making them laugh. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the way
5: people tend to approach things, and it has to deal with sensibilities. And I think that the public sensibilities at that time, because they had loved ones who were fighting the war Mm -hmm. after the war had officially started, you know. And so it's tough for them. A, A lot of people, if they had a son, a brother, you know. Who was actually over there,
7: mm-hmm.
5: uh, risking their lives on a day to day basis? It'd be tough to say, well, let's just parody these people. Right. No, uh, the propagandistic approach was far more to their liking. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, uh, the horrible, we far- what we see now as being yeah. like the horrible, mm-hmm. like Warner Brothers cartoons depictions mm-hmm. of Japanese and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, uh, the, those characterizations and stuff that were, uh, you know, got way past the ideology of the war, right. way past the ideology of the, of Hitler and Mussolini and, and actually attacked the nationalities, right. you know, And yeah. something Lubitsch is, it's just not in his DNA mm-hmm. to do that to begin with. But I think that that is what the people were so mad and angry and worried about their loved ones that they couldn't help but to hate genuinely hate, and it would get to that level. Mm-hmm. And the propagand- more propagandistic films supplied that kind of...
1: I mean, we, we get to some of those points, I and mean, we hear the word concentration camp quite a few times, but it's funny i mean this this movie is really hilarious and i i just uh yeah i, I can't help it but, but you know i mean they're doing everything right as far as i'm concerned as far as the jokes everything lands and you know that there are horrible things going on but yeah to your point paul it's not preachy but there are moments in here i mean especially the shylock speech and the way that that comes back three times in this film i mean again another nice nod to Shakespeare going on. And I think there's even a Friends Romans Countrymen uh, line at some point. So we really have this whole script just steeped in Shakespearean references. It works. Everything works. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: It's interesting, though, that that there is a scene where Solitsky is trying to uh, recruit Maria Tura to become an agent for the Nazis. Right,
1: And for people listening at home, Solitsky is a guy who i guess he's a professor at least that's what he goes by and he's actually a double agent he's over in in britain at one point and he gets the names and addresses of all these british soldiers or or polish soldiers who are fighting uh in britain and it's taking those back to the nazis to give those over so it's a pretty uh pretty big deal that basically all of their loved ones are in danger now at
5: a certain point uh, we're skipping ahead in plot and story. Yeah, no problem. But a lot of the points we're making brings to mind certain aspects of the film. Uh he's recruiting Maria, this beautiful or very attractive famous or established actress who he's trying to get her to work for the Nazis to uh, as an under uh, you know, get some information about various polls, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And in the process of doing that, he has her in his uh, where he's staying.
1: Yet another Lubitsch hotel room. I mean. Another yes. Lubitsch hotel room. <laughs> My goodness, the hotel rooms are everywhere.
5: And, <laughs> and he he tries to point out to her that you know Nazis aren't all that. We're not different from you people. We, I mean, like we like to sing, we like to dance, and it brings to mind Shylock's
1: exactly. Shall yeah. I like, mm-hmm. uh, right.
5: have I not, you know if you if you, you prick do so right. really not bleed yeah. Yeah. so so that's the way Lubitsch approaches things mm-hmm. I mean it's like he wants to, to remind you that these are people too right and it's the ideology that should be uh, right That's hated. the villain because once again I think I, I I spoke with you briefly earlier today about this is he Lubitsch doesn't have like any real monster mm-hmm. in any of his films that you can obviously point to and say that guy is evil incarnate or that's the manifestation of, of the worst human impulses
1: though it is nice that when the real hitler shows up later in the film that he doesn't give him any voice he does not he and bratsky yeah, yeah but bratsky publicly right in a public
5: like in the confrontation with greenberg in the corridor mm-hmm. he doesn't say a word as Hitler. Nope, exactly as Hitler in, in public,
1: mm-hmm.
5: he doesn't say a word True. as Hitler. True. He only speaks with the Hitler disguise on when he's talking to his other actors outside of the context of any kind of public. Mm-hmm. Thing. So Nazism itself is not given any voice in the film.
1: I think it's very telling that the person that recognizes Bronski as Bronski, when we go back to that scene in the beginning, is mm-hmm. a little girl. That she's yeah. the one that comes up and asks for his autograph. You know, it's this whole, like emperor's new clothes kind of thing mm-hmm. which is like out of the mouths of babes mm-hmm. she's the one who can recognize that he is who he is he's not hitler he's not the monster and she's the one that asked for the autograph and then everyone else gives that sigh of relief and then we kind of carry on with the rest of the film
5: it's really interesting when you take into consideration uh, Lubitsch's delicate handling of mm-hmm. nazis mm-hmm. it's interesting when when you note that Lubitsch was name-checked in Goebbels' documentary, The Eternal Jew, a propaganda film, a mm-hmm. Nazi propaganda film, wherein all these people are terrible. Albert Einstein, Jew, you know, <laughs> uh, and they're all equated to rats and everything. Right. And there's a clip in The Eternal Jew that focuses on Lubitsch. So he had been propagandized as being the scum of the earth or whatever just a couple of years prior Probably a year prior to the production of To Be or Not To Be. And yet he yeah. has this still, this deft handling of, of Nazism mm-hmm. and, and that situation. And he doesn't demonize anybody like yeah. he himself got demonized by right. them.
4: Yeah, and it goes back to his early comedies where he was a prototypical caricature of a, yeah. of a Jew. Right. You know, yeah. So that's where they picked it up.
1: Jack Benny was kind of doing that as well. I mean, we talked about the, the aspects of his character of Jack Benny and that whole thing of him being so cheap. I mean, that just speaks to like the Jewishness of the character as yeah. well, I think. Yeah. And just, it, you know, you talked about Carol Lombard as being you know who she is and then Jack Benny being the other half of this equation. Who has real skin in the game by being an American Jew in this situation? I think mm-hmm. he grew up in Europe or his family was from Europe. So he's got vested interest mm-hmm. in this kind of stuff. And then of course Lubitsch, you know, Lubitsch I talked later in the or talked last week in the interview with Joseph McBride, who was one of the few Jews who didn't come over during that emigration that we saw after, you know, Hitler started to come to power he knows what the score is and he right. is one yeah. of the ones who's being you know, targeted specifically in the eternal Jew. So yeah, there were so many people in here that had an interest in making this succeed and, and doing wonderfully. So, uh, and, and the, and you were talking about the idea of, you know, putting on the play and how so much of this stuff is acting, you know, how Jack Benny was acting this Jack Benny character, right. yeah. you know, the acting in this movie and the way that we, play these scenes out multiple times and the way that Jack Benny moves from character to character is fantastic. The way that he is the professor at one point and then he, and he, well, first he's the Nazi officer, basically being that same character that he was in Gestapo, the, the play that doesn't get produced. And then he becomes the professor and he, just the way that he moves from one. And when, when, when Earhart, uh, the real Earhart, laughs at one of the jokes and the way that Benny, who's now as, as the professor is like, I knew you'd react that way. And just like, (laughs) (laughs) it's such a nice, like, you know, my acting instincts were correct. And I, I really appreciate (laughs) that, that the dialogue just comes back time and again, because of these ways that we're doing that. And even the first time when they play that on stage, basically, or, or the, the first, Time that they have uh him as Earhart and the professor is the professor. That it is happening in the theater, you know, but uh, someplace else, not the actual real office. But it looks exactly the same as the real office. Stuff yes, later on, it's yeah. nice how it kind of is like, yeah, we were that good at this that we yeah. can make you think that this was a real Nazi office.
4: And then the theater also later becoming the place where Hitler himself is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice yeah. yeah. yeah, so play on that.
1: Boy, oh, boy, did I get a real Inglorious Bastards feel at the end of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for sure. All right. Yeah,
3: for sure. Uh, And the other movie, it reminds me of, have you guys ever seen The Last Metro?
1: No, I want to, though.
3: It's about – Was that Luc Besson?
1: I can't remember.
3: Yeah, it is Truffaut. What am I thinking? Um, It's (laughs) with Gerard Depardieu and I forget who – Catherine Deneuve. Catherine Deneuve. And um, it's a theater company and they're hiding their principal – who is Jewish, they're hiding him like in the basement or in a he's hidden. They're hiding him. And it's it's kind of like a, a melancholy to be or not to be. Like mm. it, it's well, um pardon?
5: I was gonna say design for living is Jules and Jim.
7: Oh yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. You know? You're right.
1: So I'm not surprised that uh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I think Francois uh-huh. bon- mean, Tintufo went on the record saying there's no such thing as a throwaway shot in yes. oh, yes. film. Lubitsch film. Yes, every it's true. Shot means uh-huh. something, so nothing is there just for decorative purposes. So, yeah, he was definitely a fan. So we you, you were talking about the last Metro.
3: Oh, just that it's a, um, you know, it's a theater company. They're hiding the principal, like the Joseph. Tura character in, you know, they're hiding him away because he is Jewish to save his life and um, not surprisingly, uh, the Gerard Depardieu character and the Catherine Deneuve character get together and um, he's younger than her and it, it just reminds me of a, like I said, like a like a melancholy to be or not to be.
1: How surprised um, was I watching to be or not to be the first time and realizing that it's Robert Stack as her? her I puppy was dog like lover. shocked,
3: right? I was <laughs> like, "He's was he born?" Like, I mean, the guy had a really long career. Oh yeah, um, he must have been. I mean, I could look this up obviously, but it must have been like in his twenties. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't imagine.
1: But he's still Robert Stack. He he's still, still has that voice, yeah, oh yeah, great. He's the voice, oh, totally, but totally. look yeah. is a little mm-hmm. bit different. Yeah, like the but hair
5: can, is wavier or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. They, so and, I didn't really make that connection immediately mm-hmm. that that I was I think it guy. took
3: me a couple watches to yeah. be like, oh, my God, that's Robert Stack, like the Robert Stack, like not like Robert Stack Senior and Robert right. Stack Junior, yeah. like <laughs> Alan Hale or Lon Chaney, but right. it's Robert Stack. And he's got his own little comedic thing oh, yeah, going, too. Like he's.
1: The scenes in the bedroom not, when, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. when Jack Benny comes Yeah, in? right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah
5: love that. Uh, when yeah. he's introduced in the film, when Robert Stack first appears, it's because he's been sending a mash note, more or less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's gotten backstage to Maria Tura. He wants to set up a, a meeting with her. Mm-hmm. And I love the scene where uh, her assistant and her discuss this note and everything mm-hmm. because they're saying the proper things, but you can just tell mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. way they're saying the proper things. Mm-hmm. That, okay, well, you know what, she wants to check this out. Mm-hmm. She wants yeah, to check this out. Yeah, she's interested. And they're saying things like, uh, he must be suffering, <laughs> not having, right, right. Not having access to you. Oh, yeah. He must be a poor boy. And, you know, the dialogue, as written, can be done any number of things, but it's done so slyly mm-hmm. by the two ladies that mm-hmm. you know that – this may be something that they've done before, or gone through this type of situation oh, yeah. before. Going through the numbers, yeah, it's mm-hmm. like, and at the end of the whole discussion, should she accept uh, an invitation to meet with this person or not? And she ultimately says, "I owe it to my public."
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the, those things when. He comes back and he's questioning her about all those things. She's like, "What are you talking about?" And then that he was such a big admirer that he read all the movie right. magazines that which are completely phony and Ow. you know mm-hmm. all made up. Like, what what happened to the fish? It's like, what the hell are you
7: talking about? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
5: yeah. I, I love that uh, Lubitsch. It's not the only time in the film that that he kind of like takes a a poke at inside show business mm-hmm. type wow. of things. Just bringing up the idea that that the notion that the fan magazines may be full of shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the relationship between actors and actresses and their public
7: mm-hmm.
5: are not necessarily what Hollywood publicity machine would have you believe, mm-hmm. you know?
3: And there's always a certain amount of deception in his films. Oh, not yeah. in a mean way, but people are always kind of deceiving or. Well,
1: this whole thing, you know, this, this whole, whole thing movie is deception. Is all deception. Yeah. yeah.
3: Even to a certain extent in um, Troll and Paradise where we had discussed appearance versus reality
1: oh yeah yeah lily's phone call and all that yeah we can talk about how chaste the relationship is between robert stack and carol lombard in here but you know there's still that moment when uh she's talking about if they had a baby if she and and uh and jack benny had a baby together
6: sweetheart the dress stinks.
2: you're only afraid i'm running away with the sea
6: I'm afraid. Why should I be?
2: No, of course not. You're the greatest actor in the world. Everybody knows that, including you.
6: Don't be a donna.
2: Whenever there's a chance to take the spotlight away from me, it's becoming ridiculous the way you grab attention. Whenever I start to tell a story, you finish it. If I go on a diet, you lose the weight. If I have a cold, you cough. And if we should ever have a baby, I'm not so sure I'd be the mother.
1: I'm satisfied to be the father. All right, yeah, <laughs> you know what time it is, too. Yeah, yeah. He's not being fooled by any of this. Yeah. But it's similar in
5: the relationship between... Uh, Kay Francis and uh, Gaston in Trouble in Paradise in Mm -hmm. that – and I think that uh, Maria Tora is looking at it in that kind of same light is like I'd like to fantasize about Mm -hmm. possibly having a relationship with this individual. Even though I know that it's just not practical at all. Mm -hmm. I am after all married, an actress married to an an actor. Actor. Right. Who's essentially her boss. Yeah. Yeah. In but it's student. intriguing. Tell me about how much dynamite you can drop. Right, yeah. right,
1: right. Oh yeah, which totally. Well, is. I mean,
5: talk about coded sexual metaphor. Yeah, right of course, there. <laughs> of
1: course.
3: But they're both terribly vain. Oh, yes. Joseph and Maria are both very, very vain. And this
5: is this is drawing someone in who's
1: willing to praise right. them. Right, mm-hmm. right. You know, so who can a, resist? Yeah, right. exactly. Well, of course, you've heard even of. if tour. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and the whole thing of uh, when Robert Stack you know first meets her and the he starts spinning that whole thing about how they can be together and as soon as he talks about taking her out of the acting life then that's it it's you're so going right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. to be around just, to sing my praises you've right. stepped you've
5: stepped over the line oh, there, yeah. buddy. <laughs> yeah
3: it's not
5: come on this isn't real it was never real happen. to begin with yeah
1: right. Right. i want to talk about concentration camp Earhart.
3: uh colonel
6: you're quite famous in london you know what they call you Concentration camp air. Oh, they do, do they? (laughs) So they call me concentration camp (laughs) air. I I thought you would react just
7: that way.
1: (laughs) The actor that plays him is wonderful, and then I, I love that he was uh, Sergeant Schultz in Stalag 17. Oh, Sig Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And those faces. He pulls some amazing faces in this movie. He is just wonderful to watch. Yeah, is. Uh, this yeah. is
5: an excellent example of like Lubitsch instead of having evil incarnate as mm-hmm. a Nazi, you know. Right. He's like a amiable amiable goof. <laughs> yeah. He is yeah. such a goof, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then his aide-de-camp, uh, sorry, uh, Captain Schultz, Schultz, Schultz. Yes, which is funny. <laughs> yeah. And then he's played by, what, Henry Victor, the guy who was Hercules and Freaks. So that was so nice to see him. And, and my God, the yes. comic timing on him. He was fantastic, too. Uh-huh. The worst yes. things you can say about
5: the na- Nazis who are actually depicted in this film is that they're a little stiff. That's the worst thing you can say about them yeah. is that they're a little stiff. They're a little formal. They don't seem to have a great sense of humor. Right, That's about the worst thing you can say about them.
1: Well, and the yeah. only real bad guy in here is that professor and the one, you yes. know, he wants to. He's the one who gets to die. And he's the one who gets to die. And, yeah. to die, and yeah. I think that's perfect for him. I, I, but still in all, I mean,
5: like, he has moments. Yeah, like he if does have And moments. he does make his case mm-hmm. where he's like, I like to sing. I like to
1: dance, you know. Right.
5: If you prick me, do I not bleed? Right. <laughs> By the end of the <laughs>
1: night, though, you'll be saying see Kyle, which right. I think is kind of. Also a sexually coded metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Which is an odd sexually coded
5: metaphor. I think Stephen
1: Miller uses that as a pickup line. Oh
5: my God. I wouldn't be surprised.
3: Right. (laughs) I just read that when war breaks out in Poland, there's a scene where gravestones are destroyed by the bombing of German forces. And one of the greatest says ah. Benjamin Kabelski, which oh, was Jack, Jack Benny's, Benny's real name. Yeah. Oh. Also that his father wasn't too thrilled with him.
1: Yeah, I hear he uh, making stood that up movie, and walked, walked
3: out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> when, when I that, think it was just too soon. Oh, was yeah. Too soon to not be condemning them outright. Like you said, the propagandic approach was
5: mm-hmm.
3: probably most preferred
5: so at the cares. time. In the appointment book where they're looking to see uh, Maria Torres' name in the appointment. But oh, okay, yeah. The name just underneath hers is Schindler. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's just something I noticed. Right. Last week.
1: Hmm. Ah, he was on the list.
8: Huh? <laughs> yeah, you notice this list? Huh? I'm always making lists. Oh. In
4: fact, that's probably why Steven Spielberg cast me as an Oscar Schindler, Schindler's List. I said, Steven, I make lists all the time. And he said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> but it was funny.
8: So I thought you were joking about getting the part of Oscar Schindler because
4: you made lists. No. As an actor, you need stuff to draw on. And I drew on that.
1: Okay. All right, we're going to take a break and play the conclusion of our interview with Professor Joseph McBride, author of How Did Lubitsch Do It? And we'll be back right after these brief messages.
0: And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code OOF at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out AdamandEve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at AdamandEve.com. Hello from
3: Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city Four eight two
0: zero one all right i'm here with bill by force and mr
6: chris
1: to tell you a little bit about outside the cinema all right reverend scott take us uh-huh. to church uh what can we expect to find from a typical show two hours of just random blabber <laughs> uh is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity i'm the guy that and burns the coattails and then pisses on him.
6: (laughs) You review all these exploitation, horror, comedy,
1: cult, and often all-around terrible movies... Thanks, God. Oh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much.
5: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show,
1: you lucky son of a gun. So I know that Trouble in Paradise was based on a play and you said that a lot of um, Lubitsch's works were. Was To Be or Not To Be also based on a play? And don't say Hamlet, please.
9: It's a theater troupe and they're putting on Hamlet and they also put on a play called Gestapo, which is a fictional play that doesn't exist, but they're rehearsing it at the beginning and then in real life they kind of act out a play about the Gestapo in a sense. But it was based on a story idea by Melchior Lengel, who is a Hungarian Jewish writer who contributed the stories for five Lubitsch films. It was not a play. It was just an idea that he had. He also contributed the story of Ninochka, and he was paid for just three lines of treatment of uh, Russian commissar comes to Paris, a woman who is very strict, and she has a disdain for capitalism. And when she comes to Paris, she falls in love with capitalism and, and uh, luxury. And uh, that was the story, and they expanded that into a film, but it was the whole story. And he wrote the play that Angel was based on, which is a terrific Lubitsch film. And he wrote a play called The Tsarina, which was a successful play in the 20s that was adapted by Lubitsch for Forbidden Paradise, one of his best silent films. And then that was remade by Lubitsch as a royal scandal. Lubitsch produced that. At that point, he had had a couple of heart attacks, and his doctors were forbidding him to direct. So he kind of was sitting on the set, but it was directed by Otto Preminger, not a very good film. So L'Engle, um has credits for originating five Lubitsch films, and as I've been telling my students, don't forget who this guy is. He's you know because the idea is so important. It's like I once asked Billy Wilder on the screenplay credits of Sunset Boulevard. It says Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder, and D.M. Marshman Jr. And I said, who is D.M. Marshman Jr.? It's his only film credit. He said, oh, uh, we were thinking of making a movie about a si- uh, you know silent movie star, and this guy came along. He was writing for Life Magazine, and he said, why not have the silent movie star fall in love with a young uh, screenwriter, and he becomes her kept man, and the sh- she winds up killing him. He said, that's all he contributed. Well, I mean, that's the whole story, right? <laughs> there's, there's often somebody like that in Hollywood who comes up with the story. And Wilder once said that the crucial moment in filmmaking is the first seven seconds he said when you get the idea because it's either good or bad he says he thought it was faded from the beginning the whole film the whole long process of making a film is either going to work or it's not going to work based on the idea you know if the idea is no good you know no matter what you do it's just not going to work so the person who has that idea deserves a lot of credit but it can be done badly. You know, you could give the same pitch for Nanoshka to different people. And actually, they had various writers working on it. And a couple of different directors were going to do it. And they all would have done different things with it. But Lubitsch and his writing collaborators were the ones who brought it to perfection. So they deserve tremendous credit as well. So you can take a good idea and mess it up. But no matter how hard you try to mess up a good idea, something remains from it. So I bet other versions of Nanoshka might have been pretty good but not, not, maybe not great.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about the other person that's credited as screenwriter on that, Edwin Justice Mayer?
9: He was the writer on To Be or Not to Be. He gets the sole writing credit for screenplay, and then Weigel um, gets the story credit. Mayer wrote, he was one of the writers on um, Desire, which was a Lubitsch production, not very good film, 1936. He was a playwright, and he was uh, European as well. And so a number of European People who, who had direct experience of the rise of Nazism worked on To Be or Not To Be. And he was known for, Mayer was known for a certain penchant for black comedy. He wrote a play in the 20s that was a very dark, it took a dark sensibility to be able to make humor out of that situation of the Nazis taking over Poland and how, how they're uh, ridiculous characters. And what, what got Lubitsch in trouble to some extent, was he per- portrayed the Nazis as as sort of buffoons, dangerous buffoons, but buffoons. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who was could be counted on to, as Paul and Kale said, to get everything wrong all the time, he wrote an attack on that film, and he mm-hmm. said he was outraged that the Nazis were portrayed as, as a joke, you know. And Lubitsch wrote a rare rebuttal, and he said, uh, usually in films, the Nazis are portrayed as vicious sadists whipping people and killing people and stuff. And he said, my Nazis have gone beyond that. They're in a different phase where it's become routine to them. So they make jokes about it, you know, but that requires a certain subtlety on the part of the audience to understand that Sig Ruman's character, who they call concentration camp Earhart, which is a line that he thinks is hilarious about himself, which gets a lot of laughs today. Back then it kind of shocked people. He orders killings, you know, like kind of casually. He'll pick up the phone and say, yeah, you know, round up all those uh, resistance fighters and have them killed. And then, you know, like a moment later, he'll be trying to seduce Carol Lombard or making jokes with Jack Benny. And it's chilling, the juxtaposition of uh, his job with his, um, you know, human side, his foibles, being a person who's deeply insecure and terrified of, Hitler. And I mean, that's one of the points of the film is that the Nazis in the film are always terrified of getting in trouble themselves. And that that's a good insight that fascism works on fear quite often. You inspire fear in your subordinates. So these characters who are very fearful to us and the people in the film are also afraid. And if somebody's afraid, you can conquer them, you know. And so Lubitsch was making that point. And, and Mayer was very good at uh, writing those scenes are just wonderfully written scenes, and and, and very clever. And Truffaut Tru had a great comment on "To Be or Not to Be." He said, "I defy you twenty minutes after watching that film to tell me the plot. It's just impossible, you know." And if you ask me right now, I, you know, I, to explain the plot, I'd have a hard time because it's so surprising constantly. Every time you see that film, it's surprising. Though I showed it the other day in class, and I toward the end, I kind of forgot how they're going to get out of this final mess that they're in and how they plan to do it. And, and that's that's really interesting because the film is so fresh if it surprises you each time you see it, you know, because I've seen some films 20, 30, 40 times or more, and you know every line, you know, every scene, and maybe after a while you get a little tired of it. The Manchurian Candidate is a book like that uh, by Richard Condon. I've read that seven times now, more than I've read any other novel. And I must say, every time I read that book, it seems completely new to me. Like I'm constantly amazed at every twist and turn. It's bizarre, and that's part of the reason, but it is extremely clever. And so uh, To Be or Not To Be has that audacity. And part of it is the extreme intelligence of the characters outwitting the Nazis. Like when Jack Benny is um, confronted with it, a dead body. It's kind of, you know, hard to explain. And he figures out in a flash how to get out of the situation. And it might take a, a normal person longer to figure out what to do, or not, most of us couldn't even figure out how to get out of that situation. But he he's so clever, he figures it out. And Lubitsch doesn't waste time showing him standing around thinking about it too much. And But it works. Very wonderfully, and he gets out of this situation, which is literally a matter of life and death.
1: You mentioned that Lubitsch worked several times with Edward Everett Horton. It doesn't seem like he had a troop of actors that he would work with over and over again. How was he to work with with uh, his leading people?
9: You know, like a lot of great directors had favorite actors. Uh, Felix Bressart, uh, who became kind of his alter ego, was in three films. So, you know, Lubitsch made 72 films overall, but When you do three films with somebody, they stand out, and had three great parts, in Nanachka, and Shop Around the Corner, and To Be or Not To Be, and Horton was in a number of Lubitsch films, Trouble in Paradise, he's one of the two sort of eunuchs, Charlie Ruggles is another, and he's another guy that Lubitsch used a lot, they're both very clever comedians in every film, you know, Hollywood had this great stock of wonderful actors to draw on that we love, and they'd fill out. The scenes, you know, it's not just the main stars that make those films great. It's all the people around them. Great directors like Lubitsch or Ford or Sturgis, to name three, Capra, they had certain favorite actors who pop up all the time. And uh, that gives pleasure to us that, we, oh, here's Harry Carey Jr. again. We love him and we remember him and you know, other Ford films, and he's doing a different kind of character or an inflection of that, or sometimes Ford would repeat situations that they did in other films. And Capper had his favorites, uh, Clarence Muse and Lionel Stander and people like that, and uh, Claude Rains, you know, and many, many wonderful people who would populate his films. Sturges Sturgis had a fantastic stack company. and So Lubitsch has, uh, you know, Charlie Ruggles and Edward Everett Horton are both Uh, Horton was known for prissy humor. He was kind of a clueless guy who would get outwitted and outraged about things, and that's funny. And Ruggles was sort of a madcap, kind of goofy guy, but he was always a little out of touch with reality. And he thought he was more funny and clever and good-looking than he really was, which is part of the humor of that character. He plays this very dull man and Trouble in Paradise, and he says, uh, "I like to take my fun and leave it." Talking about women, <laughs> you know, you know that women wouldn't give this guy the time of day, and so he's completely deluded. And the two of them are both madly in love with Kay Francis, who's very glamorous, and, and she doesn't, she's not interested in either one of them. And she says to Edward Edward Horton, a great line. She says, "You know, Francois, marriage is a beautiful mistake that two people make together." And then she pauses and says, "But with you, Francois, it would be a mistake." <laughs> I think I think that's one of the wittiest lines in Lubitsch. And then it, look, it cuts to him, and he's looking upset and befuddled. He just doesn't get it. So he's pursuing her all the way through the film, and she toys with these two guys in a kind of a sadistic way. But they're also kind of like pets; they're always around, you know. And that's a running joke in the story. And then when Herbert Marshall comes in, who's a very handsome, suave, clever guy, she falls for him very quickly, and that makes these other two guys angry. And it works as a plot device because Horton is the one who exposes Marshall, you know, uh, realizes, puts it together. It's a really clever scene. It takes him a long time to figure out. You know, it's a classic of delayed reactions. He's great at the sort of delayed, slow burn, as they used to call it, you know. But this this is the epitome of that. It takes him about 10 minutes of screen time to figure out who Marshall is, and it's all very funny because, you know, we know what he doesn't know we're watching, his slow brain trying to figure it out, and he he does finally figure it out.
1: In to be or not to be, I love how blatantly uh, Carol Lombard is cuckolding Jack Benny.
9: Yeah, it isn't quite clear if she's actually, I mean, this is the ambiguity that they have to do with censorship, whether she actually sleeps with guys or whether she's just flirting. It's kind of what they call in politics plausible deniability you know you could look at that film if some censor says well she's sleeping with uh, robert stack's character Lubitsch could probably say well you know i never actually show that and i don't say that and you know how do you know that and then the censor would have to say well i you know i think and all that well then it's in your dirty mind right and it's in our dirty mind too that maybe there's something going on but there's partly that ambiguity but also um like in Trouble in Paradise, in a more serious way, we're not actually sure if uh, Marshall and Kay Francis sleep together. And in a way, it's not important because what's more important is they have an emotional connection, a love that grows, and that's ultimately more important in life than than the physical things, which are important, but not as important. But we get a more of a sense in that film they might, might have slept together. But and to be or not to be, my reading is that she's just flirting with this young guy who's good-looking, young Robert Stack in the early phase of his career who's uh, mad about her like a puppy dog, you know, but she's kind of toying with him and she gets a kick out of that. But we get the impression, and it's stated at one point in the film, that this is not the first time this has happened. This is her habitual... Uh, demeanor and she has a uh, dresser who's an old woman who's very cynical who kind of has seen it all happen many times before we get the sense just from looking at the woman's reactions and she's kind of shaking her head (laughs) over it like here you go again so uh we could probably infer that she's probably had some affairs and jack benny has to put up with it and he's he's a classic schlemiel character who you know he's constantly being put upon and he's uh humiliated by her, and that's kind of funny, and, but in a sort of painful way, too. And then he he um, becomes a hero, reluctantly, in the course of the film. And we admire him, but we identify with him. I think we identify with Schlemels and Schnucks, you know, Jerry Lewis-type characters, or Jack Lemmon characters later on, and Lubitsch characters that he played as a young man in his early films were like that, too. I mean, it's hard to identify with somebody who's Tremendous stud like Clark Gable or something, because we couldn't hope to be like that in real life. Or Cary Grant, those are people we we might aspire to be. We wish we could be like Cary Grant, but we could never, you know, we could never achieve it. So it's easier to relate to somebody like a Jack Benny character, I think, you know? and so the Carol Lombard stuff—it adds a certain bite to the story. And Lubitsch's films are full of infidelity sequences and and storylines that are done in different ways. He usually condones infidelity in a way that's very un-American. In Europe, they don't get as worked up about it. You know, like quite often a politician will have a wife and a mistress and nobody really cares, but in America it's a big scandal, you know, and somebody could be impeached for this, you know, which seems like during the Clinton impeachment, people in Europe were kind of wondering, is America crazy or what? I mean, like this this merits impeachment. The whole country is obsessed with this for a whole year. uh, I mean, it really hurt our country because it took people's eye off the ball of more serious things that were going on. But Lubitsch brought this continental attitude, which people enjoyed. And I mean, part of the appeal of movies, even for kind of straight-laced, puritanical people, is the sort of forbidden pleasures we go to watch, whether it's sex or violence or whatever it is, things that we wouldn't do in our normal life. We kind of get a kick out of watching people do and, I also think movies are kind of a cautionary tale. It's like a dream when you wake up. Sometimes you have a very adventurous dream that's exciting or dangerous or disastrous, and you wake up and you think, oh, my God. And then you realize, oh, that was just a dream. I'm really relieved. I'm sure that happens to all of us. And movies are kind of like that. And some movies are literally cautionary tales, like what not to do, you know, somebody who gets involved in some terrible criminal plot or horrible situation. That you think, wow, I'm really glad I never did anything like that. But there's also a titillating factor that you, you go to movies and you kind of enjoy Carol Lombard flirting with um, young guys, uh, even though you've liked the husband at the same time. It's kind of forbidden pleasures, you know?
1: So you talked about how some people thought it was in poor taste uh, to make to be or not to be at this time. And I'm curious because. When it came to the actual studio and, and and the American reaction, I mean, weren't we supposed to still be pretty nice to Mister Hitler at this point?
9: There was a there is a a lot of literature on the subject that the American studios were um, somewhat hesitant to criticize Nazism and deal with the uh, coming war in Europe in the 30s, and there's some truth to that. There are a few few films that do deal with it that allude to it, uh, Confessions of a Nazi Spy in 1939 was a famous one that really uh, confronted it head-on. Warner Brothers was a studio that was more courageous. They had a uh, head of their Berlin office was beaten up by the Nazis and so the Warners, who were liberals in, in that era, pulled their entire operation from Germany as a result. But the other studios were still dealing with Germany and you know, they wanted the money from the from, uh, German market, and also the foreign market in general was important to Hollywood. When World War II came in, it hurt Hollywood financially a lot because they couldn't show their films in Europe. But they were worried about it. A lot of the moguls were Jewish, and they were trying to assimilate and uh, not rock the boat, as happened with a lot of American Jews in that period. were trying to keep a low profile. There was a lot of anti-Semitism. And uh, even during the war, some rabbis and other activists were trying to get public attention on the Holocaust and trying to get our government to do something about it. And shamefully, we didn't do anything. And uh, Roosevelt felt winning the war would be the best thing to do. And then, you know, that's the way to take care of Hitler. But by the time we won the war, he had killed six million Jews and several million other people. In concentration camps, as well as all the other people who died. So it was not a good strategy, obviously. And uh, the American media were terrible. The New York Times uh, had a shameful record of minimizing reporting on the Holocaust. There's a whole book on that called Buried by the Times, which I'd recommend. So Hollywood was not too courageous, and they never are. But Chaplin in 1940 broke the taboo to some extent as well by making the great dictator, which preceded to be or not to be. And that was a frontal attack on Hitler, even though it was a comedy. And it was, his character was called Adenoid Hinkle, but it was obvious that it was a spoof of Hitler. And his cronies were, um, like, Gerbil's character was called Garbage, for example. And Goering was called Herring. So he ridiculed them. He said later, uh, in his autobiography in the 60s, that if he had known about the Holocaust, he wouldn't have made the Great Dictator. And, um However, anybody with any knowledge of world affairs would know from the newspapers that the Nazis were persecuting Jews from 1933 onward and you know they burned books and they were beating up Jews on the streets and killing them and they were they passed the Nuremberg Laws in 1935 to restrict the freedom of Jews and the first concentration camp Dachau was opened in 1933 it wasn't a secret, you know. And the the Allies knew about the Holocaust from 1942 onward. We didn't call it the Holocaust until much later, by the way. That's a modern term. But in August of 42, I mean, people had been coming out of Europe trying to tell the Allied governments about what was going on. And the New York Times, as this book, Buried by the Times, points out, in the summer of 42, they ran a small item on something like page 20 of uh, you know inside the paper saying. Reports out of Europe are two million Jews have been killed in uh, Eastern Europe in recent months. And they buried it so deeply that, as the author says, if you don't put a story on page one, and preferably in the banner headline, it signals to the audience, the readership, that it's not that important or we don't believe it necessarily. If you stick it on page 20, it was a story of just a few paragraphs. So it was known, but the public didn't want to know or the government was trying to hide it from us. But somebody like Lubitsch knew what was going on, and, and it's quite clear. And then, of course, you know, the Nazis invaded Poland under false pretenses, and, and uh, heavily uh, attacked Warsaw and other places, and you know, rampaged through Europe. Everybody knew this. So Lubitsch was dealing with um, this directly, and Hitler appears in the film, seen from behind, in a few shots as he's going to a uh, theater event. And then they have a guy imitating Hitler who's seen more often in the film. And so they're talking about him directly and in the very first scene, uh, making fun of Hitler. And part of what they're doing in the film is ridiculing him. And there's always been a question I talk about this in my book, How Did Lubitsch Do It? I go into this in detail because it's an important issue. How effective in propaganda is ridicule? And is it an appropriate thing to do to uh, mock? dictators, you know, are terrible leaders. Hitler himself in Mein Kampf, his book in 1925, if, if, you, if people had read Mein Kampf, they would have known what he planned to do, because in the first paragraph, he says he's going to conquer the world and get rid of the Jews. And uh, I've always wondered, how come people didn't know this? And part of it was they didn't believe him when he said these things. They thought he was a buffoon and a comical figure. But part of it was he... Uh, he, they put out expurgated versions of this for foreign consumption. And there was not a um, an accurate American translation of Mein Kampf until 1938 when Alan Cranston, who was an advertising man in New York, later became a senator from California, commissioned his own translation and published it himself, an accurate translation of Mein Kampf. And he got sued by Hitler for plagiarism, <laughs> which he said was his greatest achievement in life. Which is kind of funny. And I found when I did my Capra biography, I was going through the uh, file production files, and in *Arsenic and Old Lace*, which Capra made in '41, uh, didn't come out till '44. But um, at one point, he was going to have a scene in which copies of mein Kampf and *Das Kapital* by Karl Marx were seen in a bookstore window, and he was going to make jokes about it. And the Warner Brothers legal department advised him not to show either one because you know, they might get sued. I don't know if Karl Marx could sue because he'd been dead, but they were worried about Hitler's suing. That shows the timidity as late as 41 of studios to some extent. And so here is Lubitsch openly, brazenly mocking the Nazis. And uh, Hitler says in Mein Kampf, there's a chapter on war propaganda, which is very shrewd in some ways because that's one thing he really knew well and brilliantly handled war propaganda. And one of the chilling things is he says that the uh, he learned everything from the Americans in World War One. Our propaganda was so good, he thought, that we took a country that didn't want war, and Wilson had won the presidency by promising we wouldn't have war in Europe, and he led us into war. And he had Edward Bernays and Walter Lippmann, who were the chief propagandists, uh, turning the whole country around. Against the evil Hun, as they called the Germans, and showing, you know, they, they lied a lot about them, you know, killing babies and raping women and stuff. And a lot of this was exaggerated. And they got the public stirred up, and Hitler thought this was great propaganda. And he said our German propaganda at the time was pathetic and horrible. And he said things like, for example, if you're selling toothpaste— one thing you don't do is you say our toothpaste is great, but the other guy's toothpaste has some good qualities and some bad qualities. He said you never you never admit the other guy has any good qualities. That's counterproductive. You just say his toothpaste is terrible and ours is great. And he said if you start giving people these either ors or what if or, but, you know, but this, you know, you're going to confuse people. And so in World War II, um, Hitler used propaganda— in the lead up to World War II as well, to knock off one country after another by scaring them. And also he did a lot of, you know, terrible physical things to uh, scare them. But um, we learned from these mistakes and our propaganda in World War II was quite blunt, as you see in the Capra, why we fight films, for example. But so, but Lubitsch used the technique of comedy, and Hitler says in Mein Kampf you should not use comedy to mock the enemy because he said it's a mistake. Because if your soldiers go into combat and they've been told that the enemy is ridiculous, they're going to be shocked and unprepared when they find out that the enemy is really ferocious. And he said they will not fight well because they'll be afraid. And that's an interesting point. So, I guess Chaplin might agree with that in retrospect, that mocking Hitler as a way of belittling him and tearing down his his mantle of invincibility, he might say, well, that wouldn't have prepared the country for how terrible you know, fighting the war actually was, or what he did to England, or what he did to other countries, or what he did to the Jews. But Lubitsch clearly didn't agree with that. He felt that mocking and belittling the Nazis was was a good strategy, and, and I tend to agree with that. I mean, I can see that there's, there are arguments on both sides, but I think in To Be or Not to Be, he's he's showing them as fallible human beings and weak people in some ways, and ridiculous in the sense that they're pretentious and foolish, and they have brute power on their side. That's true, and uh, they they can intimidate people, but but they're basically vulnerable in a sense. You can find weaknesses to uh, get at them with. And so the theater troupe in the film exploits their vanity and their weaknesses and their their stupidity and to uh, outwit them and then conquer them physically. And I think that's part of the message of the film. And it's, it's, a, it's sort of a propaganda film mixed with a romantic comedy and a black comedy. It's a whole mixture of genres. But it has a certain propaganda aspect, which Lubitsch intended. And The word propaganda is often seen as a pejorative expression, but as I point out, it's, you know, there's good propaganda and bad propaganda. For example, if you propagandize for world peace, what's wrong with that, you know? But the danger is that propaganda and art can work across purposes because propaganda can be just somebody giving a speech. However, in one scene that used to be criticized in The Great Dictator at the end of the film, Chaplin, who's impersonating... The Hitler character, he's a Jewish barber who is mistaken for the Hitler character. He, he turns to the audience and addresses us directly in a long speech, and he goes out of character, and he's speaking as chaplain. And it's a powerful speech calling for peace and against war, against fascism. And for, I remember for a long time, people used to say they didn't like that scene because it broke the character, and it was preachy, and blah, 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 blah. But now I find people love that scene. And I see it called the greatest speech ever given and it's seen as courageous, which I think it is. You know, here's a here's a man, you know, the most famous man in the world, really Charlie Chaplin. And Hitler came along and he was, I guess, his rival for most famous man in the world. They even looked a little alike. And Chaplin felt so compelled to speak out that he he went out of character and spoke as himself to the audience. And I think it's tremendously moving and uh To Be or Not To Be has a scene like that, or Felix Bressart, who's uh, Lubitsch's alter ego, the Jewish character in the film Greenberg. And they're not allowed to say the word Jew in that film. There was a taboo in Hollywood films against saying the word Jew until basically 1947, Gentleman's Agreement, which won the Best Picture Award. It was a film about anti-Semitism. Gregory Peck uh, impersonates the Jew to go around and find out how much anti-Semitism there is in the country. And somebody said rather harshly that film, the message is you better be nice to a Jew because he might turn out to be a Gentile. I don't think it's a very good film, but Chaplin said the word Jew in Great Dictator. And both that and To Be or Not To Be are United Artists films. And United Artists was a uh, major studio, but they're an independent company in a sense. They were formed by Chaplin Griffiths, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. And they never had a studio of their own. They rented studio space, and they they produced their own films. Out that's why they created the studio. But then they started releasing films made by other producers. So Chaplin basically was the richest man in show business, and he owned the studio so he could do whatever he wanted. So I, I think that's how he got away with saying the word Jew and making The Great Dictator. Whereas Lubitsch was working for United Artists and the film was produced by Alexander Korda, who was a Hungarian Jewish producer who had moved to England, very successful, very good producer. And um, he uh, it turns out later he was a British spy in World War II. That's why he was later knighted. And he was coordinating a lot of British intelligence uh, contacts in the U.S., So you have to kind of think that To Be or Not To Be was partly a propaganda intelligence production done through United Artists. So it was uh, a bold film in that sense that violated a lot of the taboos. And and Lubitsch paid the price uh, because he got a lot of vicious attacks. But in his article in the New York Times, he, he says the public has voted for this film because they've gone to this film and showed their support and they enjoy the film. And the film, however, was... Carried on the books as a loss, it didn't do as well as it should have. And one reason was Carol Lombard was killed uh, in a plane crash right before the film came out, Uh, and and the film was in post-production. There's a kind of a feeling in Hollywood generally that if a star dies before a film comes out, it's going to hurt the box office because people, you know, feel bummed out watching the film. And in this case, perhaps that was true because it's romantic comedy. She's very beautiful, and it's painful, painful uh, to watch that. And over time, that's another aspect that's changed. People are not as affected by that now. We may or may not know that she died in this plane crash. And an interesting aside to that, I heard Orson Welles say he was shooting a TV show called The Orson Welles Show. And between takes, he was talking to the audience. I was an extra in the show. And he said Carol Lombard was uh, her plane was shot down by the Nazis in America, and she was killed in Nevada. And she was on a bond drive. She was the first big star in World War II to go on a bond drive after Pearl Harbor. And she was coming home from that in a plane with uh, other people. And the plane had a mountain. And it was a peculiar crash because it was a route that was often flown by pilots. And they knew that there was this mountain there and they knew to go around it. But for some reason, the pilot flew right into the mountain and the plane exploded. And there's a book on this called Fireball which goes into this. And what Wells said was the people who know, know that the Nazis shot down the plane, but they don't want to talk about it because they don't want the public to think the Nazis have the capability. But he said that there were several important physicists on the plane with her. So it's not clear who the target was, but this has never been proven. Wells was quoted as saying this in a book later too, but um, the author of Fireball mentions this story and he said he tried hard to either verify or disprove the story and he couldn't and he says it remains an open possibility that her plane was shot down and he goes into great detail about you know the details of the crash and i mean the plane was overloaded and various things but they had hearings and investigations and officially they could never find out a a real reason for the crash so it remains a possibility but but that's a bitter uh i heard the whole production, too, that she might have been killed by the Nazis. I don't know if they knew that she had just done an anti-Nazi film, but maybe they did. You know, But the fact that she was on a bond drive, one of the last things she did in life was UA was trying to change the title of To Be or Not To Be. They thought it was too esoteric for the public, which is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, the most famous line in the literature, probably. And they wanted to change the title to The Censor Forbids, which is kind of an interesting title in a way, because it deals with censorship both... In the story, and it's it's been read as a kind of fable about Hollywood censorship. That these people, who a lot of them are Jewish, are creating this fake Nazi uh, scenario under the eyes of the Nazis. And it's somebody said that's like a parable of Hollywood in those days. But anyway, one of the last things Lombard did was send a telegram to United Artists and say she never would have agreed to be in a film called The Censor Forbids, and and. Don't change the title. I think Lubitsch may have felt put her up to that because he orchestrated a campaign to keep his original title, which is a powerful title. Deals in the Shakespeare play with suicide, but it's also about existential, you know, survival. It's also about the theater. And Lubitsch was a huge admirer of Shakespeare. He had uh, played in a lot of Shakespeare plays for Max Reinhardt. Oh, and the point I was going to make was Chaplin's great speech in. The Great Dictator is echoed in To Be or Not To Be by Felix Pressart, who plays Greenberg, the Jewish character. And I was going to say he's not identified as Jewish directly but by the word Jew, but almost the first uh, thing that's mentioned is he turns to Lionel Atwell, who's a ham actor, and he says, what you are, I wouldn't eat. So (laughs) the audience is tipped off pretty early, and so he's the representative of Judaism in the film. Jack Benny was actually Jewish, too although most people may not have known that. But it's kind of interesting that he's sort of the covert Jew in the film, and Greenberg is the overt Jew. And at the end of the film, when they all wind up in England, well, they don't all wind up in England, the one who's missing is Greenberg. And I have to admit, it took me several viewings, and I read this, there's a terrific essay by Joel Rosenberg about this. He writes all about Greenberg, and um, after Greenberg confronts Hitler by doing the speech from Shylock's uh, speech from Merchant of Venice, Hath Not a Jew Eyes, a great speech. Uh, he disappears from the film, and he's not in the scene at the end, which is the Lubitschian ellipsis. Lubitsch has worked out so much with the ellipsis. This implies that he didn't make it to England, that he sacrificed himself for the cause, and it's chilling. The speech he gives is remarkable. Throughout the film, he's a small part actor who always wanted to play Shylock, and Lubitsch himself was like that. I think he really identifies with this character because he was doing secondary parts in uh, Shakespeare plays. He played, for example, Shy Like Servant for Reinhardt. But evidently, Lubitsch's audition speech for Reinhardt was that very speech, Hath Not a Jew Eyes. And Greenberg delivers it. It's the most emotional moment in a Lubitsch film. Uh, he, he bursts out of uh, the lady's bathroom just dressed in street clothes, and he confronts all these stormtroopers who are mixed in with Jack Benny's troop, you know, who are fooling them. And he addresses Hitler, who is actually an actor playing Hitler. But they're, they're surrounded by real stormtroopers, and he's giving this impassioned speech, and Lubitsch does it in close of it. I think that's kind of an equivalent to the chaplain speech in The Great Dictator. It's addressing the audience, the world audience, about prejudice and why should we be persecuted just because we're Jews. It's a tremendously powerful scene. And Greenberg does it brilliantly with tremendous feeling. And he did it earlier in the film in a kind of more low-key way where he's rehearsing it. So it's a tremendous achievement for him, but also it shows great guts and courage and probably loses his life for doing this. And uh, it's, you know, it's Lubitsch's direct answer to anti-Semitism and the persecution of his people. Uh, A tremendously brave film. I mean, the more I think about this film, I'm just kind of in awe that somebody could make this film in 1941, 42 It's just astonishing, isn't it?
1: I've got one more question for you, because obviously you've seen a lot more Lubitsch films than I have, uh, probably all of them. One of the few films of his that I have seen is Monte Carlo, and it's interesting to me that there's an echo in To Be or Not To Be that is in Monte Carlo, and I'm curious if it shows up in other things as far as jokes and the way that a joke will pass from one person to another, because we've got that joke that Claude Alister Duke von Lieberham, tells, and then he eventually – I think he realizes that he's telling it about himself after he's heard it from someone else – and then we have that joke about Hitler being a kind of cheese. Does that show up other places as well? Do we have that transmission of information through jokes in other Lubitsch films?
9: Yeah, that's a good catch you made there. That's a great example. And uh, it's very funny, and it's a character-revealing trait that somebody, when he learns a joke, is being told about himself, but he's telling it, and then he, his face falls. It's it's wonderful. Well, Lubitsch did so many variations on gags, and you know, one of the things that good – comic filmmakers do is have running gags that pay off. You know, I mentioned the hat scene in the is really three scenes. And if you take out even the middle scene, it wouldn't be as effective. You know, it's a build of things. Billy Wilder learned that his films are wonderfully constructed and they, he'll plant something early in the film and then allude to it in the middle and then pay off later. Hitchcock does that in his films, uh, not just for comic effect, but he'll repeat things three times But he does it in different ways. But he he was very concerned with clarity, which uh, Wilder was and Lubitsch was, too. That He wanted the audience to understand things. And if you're going to make people laugh, they kind of have to understand what's going on. Like if if you're trying to figure out what's going on and you're baffled, you're not going to be laughing because you're going to be pondering. But if you're getting something, that's part of the joy of humor is you kind of explode with laughter when you get a joke. Uh, there's a scene in John Ford's Young Mr. Lincoln where uh, Lincoln makes a joke, and then everybody laughs, and then there's this 30-second pause, and suddenly the judge erupts in laughter. He says, I just got it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful delayed reaction, then the whole audience laughs again. So that's what Lubitsch, uh Wilder calls the super joke, and Lubitsch calls the topper of the joke. You know, You have a joke, and then you top it, and so that's part of this repetition thing. As you repeat it, but it's not just repeating; it's repeating in a different way, or or building building on something. And uh, transmission of um, information or attitudes or uh, sly innuendo is is very much a part of his comic style. And you see that in the musicals and the romantic comedies. There's a lot of that where people are alluding. To one thing or another, Trouble in Paradise is a wonderful scene early on where the woman loses her handbag and there's a whole elaborate scene about people trying to get to reward money by pretending that they have the handbag. But late in the film, when Herbert Marshall and Mary Hopkins are going to make their escape, the phone rings in the middle of this fairly intense scene. And he says, what? What? You found a handbag? Uh, You know, you're too late. He hangs up. It's just a wonderful little throwaway gag that alludes to the earlier gag and but it's it's hysterically funny but it's the kind of thing that happens in life where you know unexpected things happen you know i, I often think in of screenwriting there's a line from john lennon life is what happens when you're making other plans you know and that's a that's a good motto for screenwriters because if you just follow a straight line it starts to seem artificial but if you throw in those kind of unexpected things. It seems like real life. However, it's also alluding to something that the audience knows from before. And so it's a topper for an earlier gag. unexpected to the unexpectedness is part of the joy of the thing. And so Lubitsch was a master at that kind of thing. And I'm sure when they were having their story meetings, as you were asking about, you know, him and Rafelson were sitting around kicking around ideas, one of them probably said, What if the phone rings and and you know, some wild idea like that. And uh, that's where they'd get some of their best scenes. But it it takes a lot of work to come up with those and make them seem effortless, which is part of the genius of Lubitsch and part of the joy of his touch, which was so, uh, it seems so compact and so efficient and effortless, but it was the result of tremendous hard work. But it's, it's part of the art that disguises art in a way. And to get back to your question, I think that's one reason he's underrated is that he didn't flaunt his art, like showing off fancy shots, although there are a lot of fancy shots in this film, but they're done for comic effect or for emotional effect. And uh, as Truffaut said, I defy you to say there's a wasted shot in any Lubitsch film. I would call you a liar if you tried to tell me there was. You know. And so every scene works and it's in there for a reason. And the films are like beautiful clockwork, you know, and we can marvel at their craftsmanship, but it's done in the service of humor and emotion. And that's that's really, really communicating to us.
1: Professor McBride, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate this.
9: Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, this is a lot of fun to talk about Lubitsch, as always. And you always have great questions, so I really appreciate it.
1: Only
8: Mel Brooks could see the funny side of Hitler's invasion of Poland. He will delight old fans and win many new ones with To Be or Not To Be, his funniest film ever.
10: I've invaded almost every country in Europe, And I still can't get a table at my favorite restaurant.
8: Brooks and Bancroft are the greatest duo since Bogart and Bacall, dancing their way through chaos as the theater crumbles at their feet. Come on! on! What's going on? All right, all right,
10: don't
7: panic! You'll get your costume?
8: But the show must go on. To be? The glittering performances on stage don't hold a candle to what's going on behind. As Anna Bronsky signs autographs.
10: What? What? They're turning my house into Gestapo headquarters. They are. No, they're not. They cut off my gasoline. They closed my bank account. They took my pearl stick pin. They took my little tinker. They took the top off my gold game. But they are not. I repeat, not taking my house. Never. Got
8: everything. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. True love should never stand in the way of a good
10: time. All I want is peace. 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 A little piece of police. A little piece of France. A little piece of Portugal. And Austria. I asked them, I asked them, I asked them There's all right, get it, get
8: it. This screamingly funny family film has more than enough singing, dancing, action, and comedy to fill with laughter any winter's night. He'll
10: be baking for you. All
1: right, we're back, and we're talking about To Be or Not To Be. Now, let's talk about the uh, remake of the film that, uh actually, I had in my notes Mel Brooks directed, but it was actually Alan Johnson, the director of Solar Babies. Um, and this was... Him, Mel Brooks, starring in it uh, back in 1983. It was 41 years after the original film release. Not necessarily a, a good time for Nazis at this point. I had heard that this was so similar to the original, and it is so not that similar to the original. Um, I mean, we started off with... Some things that are similar, but they really made this into a musical more than the original was. I mean, I don't think there's any singing in the original, but my God, there's a lot of singing and dancing going on in here. Like the sweet Georgia Brown thing right off the bat. And I mean, I love Mel Brooks in some things, but uh, the man is not necessarily a good singer. Um It was... <laughs> Kind of reminded me of A Cat in Heat a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing that really got me was just the ego. The Mel Brooks ego really took over this, um, that he had to play – so many of the roles that it wasn't just him as Tura that he his character's name is Bronsky in this one. So he gets to be Bronsky and Tura at the same time. So he ends up getting to play Hitler in this film. And I thought that was a really good thing in the original that Jack Benny wasn't playing Hitler, that he was playing the other roles. Mm -hmm. And even at the end, when when he loses his mustache, Jack Benny's character loses his mustache, I thought, okay, well, they're going to stick the Hitler mustache on Jack Benny and he'll go in and he'll rescue his wife. But no, they send Bronski in, which I thought was a really nice thing that they hmm. give him that opportunity.
5: Well, in that context, right. it would have made sense for him to go get his wife. Mm-hmm. But because he lost the mustache, he couldn't, he couldn't. It's ingenious. Some of the machinations they have to go on to to put the, the plot forward, the the whole scene with the, the dead Seletsky.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh God! Huh.
5: <laughs> How do you come from "There's a dead guy in here" to "I'm proving I'm going to prove that that guy's the phony Seletsky, and I'm the real one"? Oh yeah. Let's see, what is going to have to happen to t- to make that happen? I'm going to so your, your <laughs> I'm gonna have to shave <laughs> off his beard. I'm going to have to shave off his <laughs> beard, yeah. take a fake beard that I just happen to have on me, right. Right. knowing that they'll pull the be- beard to see whether it's real or not. Uh-huh. I mean, the hoops that you have to jump through to get that and still make it seem like... Right, yeah, Yeah. and it's two shots. Still make it work. Yeah, it's a shot
1: of him pulling the beard out. You know, we've heard that in dialogue before that he has the extra beard, pulls that out, and then we see the razor, and that's it. And we put those together. It's what you're talking about: two plus two.
3: I can't think of two more different filmmakers than Lubitsch and Mel Brooks. Exactly, because Lubitsch is subtle. (laughs)
1: It's
5: the Lubitsch touch. Right. And it's the Mel Brooks sledgehammer.
3: Right. (laughs) And Mel Mel Brooks is like, everything is on the nose. Everything is two plus two equals four. And he's going to tell you that it's four.
5: I think maybe, I'm not sure about the production history of the the remake. I think it was. Literally, uh, it had become, turned into a Broadway play, Mm. a musical. And I think somebody thought... Hitler, on the stage, producers.
3: <laughs> it's great. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Mel
5: Brooks, we have to do it that way. Right. Without taking any other thing into consideration.
3: Well, I mean, times had changed, Jew, Nazis, yeah. yeah. Yeah, times had changed, too, to where maybe people were looking for more, you know, broad comedy for the time. hmm You know, maybe the sophistication was not, was viewed as prudish or uptight. hmm
1: Right. Yeah. Or- well, no,
5: I'm, I'm not, Paul. I'm not really quite sure whether it was just like, maybe we can get some more money out of a Mal Brooks vehicle. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that could be too.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, mean, he was recycling himself in this one. I mean, because there's a a music video that was released around the time of the release of the movie, and it was the Hitler rap. So first off, you're trying to. You know, oh, the Hitler rap. It's like fucking Rodney Dangerfield and those things, you know, the honeymooners rap that, uh, that, uh, Piscopo and those guys were doing, you know, so it's like, okay, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to capitalize on that. We're gonna capitalize on music videos. We're gonna have Mel Brooks dressed up as Hitler in this music video, and then he's gonna quote himself. He's gonna say the whole "Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party." I mm-hmm. mean, that you know, you're you're taking from your own jokes. You know, yeah. come on, guy.
5: Yeah, there really is only so much so much mileage you can get out right? of that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the I like Dick Shawn's performance and the producers. Oh yeah, I think that's really rich and everything. But after that, you go to that. uh you know mill too often and it's going to run up come up mm-hmm. dry and ultimately i think that that's what happened
1: here and i love ann bancroft but she's no carol lombard you now and right. that there's those things about
3: nobody had that combination of the elegance and the kookiness yeah. right
1: yeah
5: no,
3: nobody was did that yeah. like her
1: yeah. and there's the whole thing of mel brooks you know the the Bronski actor is too full of himself, and the, her name isn't even on the poster. If it's on the poster, it's in parenthesis. So, yeah, he's playing that up that he's supposed to be so full of himself, but it feels like that's too real. It feels like Mel Brooks really is full of himself <laughs> in
7: this film. So
1: I'm not trying to pick on Mel Brooks. Like I said, I love the guy, and I, I love a lot of stuff that he did. Sure. I mean, Blazing Saddles, to me, is still one of the best movies ever made. I agree but this one man it just was such a clunker how do
5: you think Lubitsch would have done the farting scene
1: ha 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 Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. People slowly
3: leave the room with a slight look of distaste. And, and, you know.
1: Yeah. If some scenes can be done all through clocks, I mean, what can can be done? (laughs) I mean, it's that whole, you know, how did Lubitsch do it? You know, you you think about how the scene can be done one way and then you do it the different way. (laughs) Right. to, to, To get that message across.
5: I'm not familiar with the remake did he have a, a share of writing credit for that or was it just something that I'm was drawn sure. directly from the play the musical version that had been on Broadway
1: yeah that's a good question I mean there were some interesting changes like the, the maid that you're talking about the the assistant right. to, uh, uh, to Maria she ends up becoming a gay guy in the remake and it was interesting that it was one of the first times that they talked about how the gays were put into concentration camps and he talks about the Pink triangle and that it clashes with everything. So there's actually a couple funny lines sure. here and there. But I, yeah,
5: I can buy that.
1: Yeah, but for the most part, it was just it was really it it, it hurt to watch it, and I can really see <laughs> yeah. rewatching it or trying to rewatch it. I ended up watching a lot of it and fast forward. I can really see why I didn't want to go anywhere near Lubitsch's version after seeing that one when I was a kid. Um, and the Hitler rap isn't in the movie; Uh it's a side piece to it, but. Mm-hmm. The jokes are very 1983, whereas uh-huh. with Lubitsch's, you know, the jokes aren't necessarily 1942. You know, right. you can watch that one now and be just as thrilled, <clears throat> just as happy.
5: Yeah, it's a a general sensibility right. as opposed to a topicality. Or-
3: mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the writing credits are Thomas Meehan, Ronnie Graham, Edwin Justice Mayer, who was the original screenplay, yeah. Melchior Lengel,
1: who the story, the
3: story the and then – Ernst Lubitsch was uncredited. Well, he was uncredited as a
5: writer, but right. everything was, I've read mm-hmm. about
3: yeah, people know Lubitsch's that was, involvement
5: with no. his films is mm-hmm. that he co-wrote everything. He collaborated very
3: Right. I'm talking about the 1983.
5: The 83 yeah. one so they credited right. is based on yeah. the screenplay, is that right. what they're saying?
3: Yeah. But there's, yeah, there's an additional story credit and two additional screenwriters.
4: We haven't said anything about Edmund Justice Mayer. Yeah, who apparently was a super genius and uh, this was his one great film. He made a lot of stuff at for all the major studios. Huh. But this, he had one play, Firebrand, I think, that okay. really took off on Broadway. And then he went to Hollywood and became part of the intelligentsia uh-huh. circle. Uh, Eslin Berman and other people who are Mankiewicz who are part of that. And so this was like, Huge for him hmm. to be. Involved,
5: I, I think he, I think Lubitsch offered it to Samuelson or Raifilson, and he rejected it. He says I don't think it's a, f- a funny story.
4: Hmm. I, I mean, I I'm, I'm I'm Sure, follow you.
5: Lubitsch tried to get Samuel Ralph Rafelson, his regular. Yes, he rejected. Samson. And he yeah. rejected it yes, based yeah. on the f- fact that he just thought it was tasteless to do that. Then, yeah. Which, you know... Was.
4: But Lubitsch had done one other film, I forget which one, with Mayer as well. So oh, okay. they did have prior experience right.
5: together. yeah. okay. Yeah. It was interesting because there was talk during the production about whether or not uh, who would want to be involved in this, mm-hmm. and that there were several people who were invited to be part of the film. I don't think Carol Lambard was the original choice to play Maria Tora. Hmm. I think he went
4: through... uh, It was Miriam Hopkins, actually. Miriam Hopkins. Okay.
3: That makes sense.
4: Because
3: he did like to work with the same people.
4: Yeah.
5: I I wanted
3: uh, to
5: touch briefly on, on the scene in the film that I thought was kind of propagandistic. The voiceover, the narrative voiceover. I don't know how much of that... Was controlled. Did was he? Did he have final cut on the film? Yes, he did. Yeah, he did have final yeah, yeah, cut on the film. So, yeah. so it may have been just a suggestion or something. Hmm. Or when the war had started in earnest, they thought that it would have been good to add this voiceover. You're, you're talking about
4: the voiceover at the beginning of the film, though. No, right? when
5: the film the film was made, yeah, and the war hadn't started during the production of the film.
4: Right. The American yeah.
5: involvement, yeah. had not been started during the production of the film. In post-production, I'm thinking that there may have been an idea of how can we, uh, make this a little bit more gung-ho because the yeah. content itself, like, I, like I've been saying, or like what I think is that it's not really anti-Nazi enough. Uh-huh. Um, not that it's pro-Nazi, but it, is, it plays as, as more of a comedy, suspense thriller, Romance combination of that as opposed yeah. to like being a war film,
4: yeah.
5: Like we're up to our necks in war, you know. Yeah. All those elements, those elements make up the the bulk of the movie. There's nothing really warlike. It just more or less seems more like a bureau- bureaucratic movie. Yeah. Like we're dealing with bureaucracies here. It's just that some guys are wearing uniforms and they're bureaucrats,
1: right? So Ken was talking about the scene when the Poland is invaded. And there's that voiceover talking about the V for victory. Right? right. And that is, it's that same voiceover artist, but it is much more bombastic than it's it sounds. It's meant at to beginning. stir. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But a new spirit had come over the people of Poland. Hate and more hate was the answer to the Nazi terror. Rebellion against suppression. Determination to fight at any moment, anywhere, everywhere. The battle was on. V, V, V for victory. Down with the Nazis, down with Hitler. The war saw underground striking back, sabotage, destruction. But the real fight for Polish freedom was led somewhere in England. Young men of Poland avenging their country. The Polish squadron of the RAF.
5: And it seems a little bit out of place. Uh Because that does not, that is not the voice of Lubitsch. Right. That's yeah. not the way he would handle.
4: Yeah, so it's very much like a post-production Yeah. On. Yeah. Yeah. Tacked yeah. yeah.
3: on. Yeah.
1: yeah, and then later on after the theater scene when Hitler's at the theater and they don't blow up the theater, which was you know, unusual. I'm used to them blowing up <laughs> movies, um,
3: which I love to see. Right?
1: Way. Yeah. Oh no, it's great. Especially, yeah, to see him uh, just die because of nitrate film. When they look out the window and they see that a, a place is burning, and and uh, Bronski's like, "Oh yeah, the resistance." Yeah, I was like, "Okay, that's nice." It kind of brings us back to that point, but doesn't hit us over the head with that. I mean, right? But yeah, to your point. I mean, you, we talked. Uh, you know, Paul, you talked about the Lubitsch touch, and we talked about the Mel Brooks sledgehammer, and that <laughs> v v for Victory, the hatred, hatred, hatred. You know that is is kind of a, a heavy touch, let's say, yeah. compared to the rest of this film. And there's uh, yeah. broken
5: windows in a yeah. bookstore. Oh, yeah. that are de- that have Mineconf in the bookstore window, glass mm-hmm. being broken and all that stuff. Yeah. So.
1: Right. Yeah, and then that second instance of the Shylock speech with uh, you know them out cleaning up the streets. It looks like, and uh, yeah, that's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, God, I just remember that. Not only does Brooks get to play. Hitler in the in the remake, but he even plays that role. He even gives the Shylock speech. It's just like mm-hmm. every, every moment that yeah. you can think of.
3: He's, he's like the real life Joseph Tura. Oh, yeah.
1: Didn't God. they have any other stars in this film? They, they <laughs> had really. Jose Ferrer I mean, and they had Tim Matheson. But, yeah, no, as far as like that. Actual calendar, star stars? But, I mean, the I guys mean, well, and Bancroft, but the the but the guys who played, uh, you know, Mr. Greenberg, bomb, uh, sorry, Mr. Greenberg, Mr. Greenberg, and Mr. Pransky, they weren't, you know, uh, we see them in other movies and stuff, mm-hmm. but they weren't. The, they're not. They're not Jack Benny. I think the so, temp- yeah the temptation
5: would be how do how do we update this, uh-huh. and how do we make it for contemporary audiences, and my reaction would be don't bother, right? You yeah. know, but for some reason, I I, I think that. Uh, I don't know who makes these decisions. <laughs> who, yeah, there was a Broadway musical of Sunset Boulevard, right? And it's like I don't. Why?
3: I never, never <laughs> saw I it. Never saw <laughs> it. Yeah. I've seen Sunset Boulevard, the movie, many, many times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe has I guess to, I don't feel it necessary.
5: Goes back to the paucity of original ideas <laughs> in in Hollywood. But
1: and sometimes and, you can see stuff that gets a new spin on, it and you're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, that's yeah. An interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, okay. remakes have been going on since but, the beginning of. Yeah. Hollywood beginning a film. Oh, like,
5: sure, certainly, yeah. but, but but the idea of a musical version of this, that, or the other, mm-hmm. there is the thought in someone's head, we'll do a musical version of this, and someone will make a movie out of it, mm-hmm. so we're going to mm-hmm. get paid twice for it, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And, well, yeah,
1: the producers.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Hairspray.
5: Hairspray. <laughs> I
1: mean, even going back to Little Shop of Horrors, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. so.
5: Oh, well, the Producers was a film, then it became a musical of the film, then it became a film of the musical, musical. Of the film. Right. yeah. Yeah, I haven't
1: really bothered to check that out. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Me either.
5: I noticed even while uh, comparing the two films, uh, Trouble in Paradise was like 19 minutes shorter. I have more to say about that. It zips form.
1: by, though, doesn't
5: it? It zips by, yeah. and there's more that is, I think that uh, in some ways... To be or not to be is less of a Lubitsch film mm-hmm. because of the various different elements that were involved. The idea that that it had to be different because it had to involve, like, a larger universe than Lubitsch was used to, triangles, you know, mm-hmm. basically. But this was like World War II. So a certain amount of the film had to be delegated to that. The plot, more or less, drove it more, and I think that the other film was more character-driven.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: And so I always find things that are more character driven to be more interesting for me mm-hmm. as opposed to more specifically story driven so for me i thought i really don't have as much to say about to be or not to be mm-hmm. as i do about trouble in paradise and you would think that wouldn't be the case because the one film is so much more
1: right you've got the timeliness you've got the yeah, yeah. the, the yeah. historical context you can talk about
5: yeah uh, but i really don't know what to say about mm-hmm. that stuff you know No, i gotcha you. did you know that uh Cahiers du cinema does a Every 10-year poll, greatest movies of all time. And To Be or Not To Be was 13th.
3: What was number one?
5: Citizen Kane. Trouble in
7: Paradise. Yeah, I was (laughs)
3: going to say.
5: Trouble in Paradise was 61st. So, I mean, that shows you the kind of regard that uh, Lubitsch has, obviously, in France. I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting side note. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that the war affected the French so directly, you know. And so it may have had more of an impact over there or something.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and then speaking to the Polish resistance, and the, the resistance was so big in France yeah. and just such a major part of their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
7: Mm-hmm.
4: Interesting that Mark Soffels is a big Milibich fan, and not only that, but also Marcelo Fels is a big... Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Yeah. You know, I, yeah.
3: Yeah. I believe that.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I do yeah. too. Yeah, I could see the Max Hoffels thing specifically because they're both sophisticated... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they both, their films involved complicated relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly.
1: Going back to mm-hmm. that, too, I mean, to have that whole relationship being built up by the dances, I mean, that seems like such a Lubitsch thing. You know, like, how mm. can we present. These two mm-hmm. falling in love in a way mm-hmm. that we haven't seen before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One, you've got the clocks, and one, you've got the dances. dances. Right, right. The, the yeah, it's like time yeah. and, and. Show, and, don't and, tell.
4: Exactly. All yeah. does that in a lot of From an Unknown Woman as well, where they dance in, in the broader. Right. Uh, same idea mm-hmm. with turning the lights well, on. I haven't and seen everything. that one in yeah. a long time. Yeah. Yeah. One,
5: one emphasized the comic, one emphasized the more dramatic. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. So, yeah.
1: But I could weep at the end of uh, Trouble in Paradise just oh, as yeah. I could. Uh, with uh, with Madame Du, mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: and that's what I didn't really get to talk about for to be or not to be. When he when he's actually decides that he's going to go through with it and get killed, it's sad. It's the dark from the light and the light from the dark. There's that moment where he's like, yep, my life's over. You can just see it on his face. Wow, this is it. And then he goes on and does it.
1: Let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
8: story is a legend, a living legend, a legend that will live long after lots of other living legends have died. Tonight, we are extremely proud to present the semi-legendary life story of the Prefab 4, Dirk, Nasty, Thig and Barry, who made the 60s what they are today, the fabulous Ruddles. <laughs>
2: From these streets, very close to the cavern, Rutland, came the fabulous Rutland sound, created by the Prefab Four, Dirk, Nasty, Stig and Barry, who created a musical legend that will last a lunchtime. They were discovered by their manager, Leggy Mountbatten, in a lunchtime disco very close to these streets. Their first album was made in 20 minutes. The second took even longer. Tonight, we examine the legend of the Ruttles. We look at their lives, their loves, their music. We examine some of the problems that made them what they are today. And we shall also be asking some of the people who worked with them whether they were really the sort of lovable people they were made out to be. We shall be asking many people who knew them what they were really like. When I fell for you I didn't need a shove Now
7: that we are too it all. And people go naturally Let's be natural
1: That's right. We'll be back next week with our 400th official episode of The Projection oh. Booth, where we'll be discussing the Ruddles. All you need is cash. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host. So, Paula, what is the latest with you in Cinema Detroit, ma'am?
3: I'm still the co-founder and programmer at Cinema Detroit, located at 4126 3rd Street in Detroit, zip code 48201. And all our current features and showtimes may always be found at cinemadetroit.org.
4: How about you, Lutz? Oh, I got a long-term project, really long-term, uh, on re- rental studio independent production in Hollywood from circa 19, 18, 1919, right after the war, and up to 1956 when every studio became a rental lot, really, mm-hmm. basically. Ultimately, had to make the decision to go back to the silent era, and I'm doing a production history of Marshall, Nealon's Dinty from 1920, first serious role by Colleen Moore, and first real appearance by Anna Mae Wong, and uh, some really interesting stuff. It's on YouTube if you want to check it out. Dinty, is a newsboy. How about you, Kent? Uh
5: still got the band. We're
4: still. Uh,
5: is it still boys' out? night out? We're still loud. Okay. Working on a video editing project, and still retired. And I think I have a trip to Europe in my uh, future, like in June or something like that. That's so, yeah. so
4: fine. Yeah. Huh? better hurry up. Yeah, better hurry up. Right. Before yeah. Before, before like, anything crazy happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Before we can't go over to Europe anymore. <laughs> That's
5: true. <laughs> or go anywhere anymore.
1: <laughs> so, uh, where can people go if they want to hear Ken's loud band? Uh, uh, we
5: have a Facebook page. Ken's loud band should get you there. All right. Um. There, there's stuff on uh, Bandcamp and SoundCloud and your various different free musical services. We're
1: just making up words now. SoundCloud, yeah. Bandcamp, just- SoundCamp.
3: SoundCamp, yeah. yeah. All right.
5: But Ken's loud band. All right. Three separate words. All right. Hmm. With an apostrophe in
1: there somewhere. Hmm. Somewhere, yeah. <laughs> Any umlauts or no umlauts? Accent ague. Like <laughs> Very nice. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
10: order before you knew hello new order all those mothers in the fatherland i said oh dude, baby i got me a plan I said, what you got eight of? what you gonna do i said how about this one
7: world war two